Okay, welcome Jim Cross and all my listeners back to the first step. Um, this podcast is always about helping us in, in ways that might lead us to more health and happiness and mind, body, soul. So today our discussion is going to be around our forests, what's happening in BC as far as logging and some ancient growth forests. And I am really excited to welcome Jim Cross to my podcast. He is a wonderful man who spent a good portion of his career working in the forest industry. Jim, you have um, been a superintendent of Sawmill in Port Alberni. You've been in charge of Cedar Lumber Marketing in Vancouver. You've been a general manager of uh, TFL, which is a tree farm license in Terrace in Castlegar. Um, You've been a VP of marketing for Seaboard in Vancouver, for an international lumber marketing group, a partner in the Raven Lumber at, saw, at a sawmill in Campbell River, a VP of um, WN America, tell me what that is, for a .com, and now you've retired in QB, so, or you did retire in QB, but you're back on the mainland now, and you're still involved in this industry to some degree because you're on a log export committee, so I think you have a wealth of information to share with us about um, the forest industry in BC. Is there anything you wanted to add to your um, resume there? No, that's fine. That's, that covers it all. Okay, so my intention of asking you to be a guest on this podcast is because I think it's always beneficial when we're, you know, I think this is a, a major issue at hand these days is kind of how do we manage our environmental concerns with our economic ties into these industries that in the past, not they didn't necessarily need to be so environmentally concerned. There was a time where we were just kind of, you know, taking things from the earth, thinking like, it, you know, we could do that forever. But as I see it, we're kind of at a, at a crossroads. And I think, you know, people like you who worked in a time um, where maybe we didn't have to have so much consideration, you have more knowledge about the industry than let's say people like me who are just coming in and seeing the problems with it. So I hope that our conversation can kind of bridge that gap and, and help us all to see maybe a more sustainable way uh, forward. Um, so first off, I just thought I might ask you, um, how did you end up working in the forest industry and what was the best and worst part about your career? Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, I'm from Alberta, like you are, Jill. And I was hired by a company called Macmillan Bloedel uh, in Edmonton. And <clears throat> so I started working for them and I got transferred to the coast and uh, ultimately got transferred to Port Alberni. Um, where I was a superintendent, a training superintendent in one of the mills there. And uh, from there, I was taken, brought back to Vancouver to look after Cedar Marketing uh, in the head office. And Macmillan Bullet at the time was the largest cedar manufacturer in the world. And uh, that's now Western Forest Products and they are the largest in the world. Uh, from there, a group of us uh, left Macmillan Bloedel and uh, moved to a company called Brick BC Resources. And if there's any older people out there, they'll remember getting five free Brick shares. Uh, I went to Terrace and 
uh, where I was responsible for a sawmill there and a tree farm. And uh, ultimately to Castlegar, where I was also general manager of sawmill tree farm, and then back to Vancouver, looking after marketing for a, a consortium of companies like Canfor, Weldwood, uh, Interfor, and so on. So uh, I, I had a chance to see the, uh, the deal with the trees, the manufacturing of trees into lumber, and the marketing of the lumber globally. What was your question? What was the, <laughs> what was what was the best part of that career and, and the worst part? Ah, the best part of my career had to be in Terrace. Um, we uh, took our project on there where we converted a mill, an old, old, old mill that was um, essentially bankrupt and uh, was 100% United States lumber uh, producing. And we converted that to 100% offshore for Japan and, and Europe. And uh, in do doing so, we won an award from the federal government for the best marketing and manufacturing program in Canada for that particular year, which was back in the 80s. So we won a gold medal of excellence from the federal government for that project. I then moved to Castlegar, um, and we call that area the Castlegar Triangle, as in the Bermuda Triangle. It's very different there. And that was uh, the most difficult project of my life. Um, it was not uh, a very um, welcoming area to be in the forest industry in. So uh, there was a lot of public um, resentment toward the forest industry. There was a lot of scrutiny of the forest industry. And I was, uh, I had to take uh, media training and I was being interviewed in the paper and the television regularly and constantly under criticism for one thing or another. And that was a more challenging uh, uh, time in my career. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the third part of my career that I enjoyed was when I took over the marketing function for the Seaboard Group. Uh, I was, I basically traveled the world uh, marketing Canadian lumber, the lumber from the shareholders of the company uh, to everybody that had a hard currency. And uh, so I was able to see the world um, in a business format. So it wasn't like backpacking through Europe. It was staying at nicer hotels and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, uh, and that gave me a wonderful perspective on the forest industry in the world and the forest industry in Canada. And the last piece I would mention is recently I was asked to go to Siberia for a Chinese owned sawmill and, and uh, plywood company um, in a place called Asino. And I went and visited there twice at the request of the owners to bring a perspective to them about what I saw in their particular industry and or their particular business and what, what I would do if I was in charge and, and was running it. And that culminated in a trip to the Wuhan, home of the coronavirus, <laughs> which was several years in advance of that. Um, sitting down with the Chinese owners and, and talking about the forest industry from their particular perspective. 
So it was, uh, I've had a wonderful career and I've seen everything that I ever hoped to see. And I remain on the log export committee, which is a totally misunderstood part of our forest industry as well. Log exports is very emotional. And um, I, uh, perhaps we even can talk about some clarification on how that all works. Yeah. Well, I already have a couple more questions from what you just said, but um, any, and so I'll try to loop back to a few of the things you just mentioned. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to say in regard to that question? No, that's, that, that pretty much covers it all. Okay. I, I, I could go on and on for weeks. So I, I've decided that's enough. All right. Okay. Well, well, I, I think we will try to come back to that because I have a, yeah, I have a couple questions that came up from what you said, but let, let me ask you, I, I want to make sure we get this part in because I think this, you know, we're all multidimensional beings, right? So what you do in your career, what you, how you feel about, um, trees or forestry or industry is one aspect of your life. But I know that you also spend tons of time fly fishing and just dropping into nature in the middle of a stream or a river, or I don't know where else you fly fish. And so I'm, I'm making the assumption, but you can tell me if I'm right or wrong for sure, that you also have a very deep appreciation for nature and that you've spent hours and hours immersed in it. And I'm just curious as somebody who, who seems to spend a lot of time in nature over the years and over the decades, have you noticed a shift in, in the environment, in, in the way that you just can be in it or what you, what you feel in it from year to year and decade to decade, do you see that shifting? And if you do, do you have any concerns about those changes in the environment that you might see, or maybe you don't? Well, uh, yes, I am a fly fisherman and I uh, continue to uh, go up to the Skeena River system every year. And I fly fish for steelhead and I fly fish for steelhead on TFL number one, which was the tree farm license that I managed when I was resident in Terrace. So I was always very, very interested and concerned with uh, our activity in the tree farm and how it affected our business and how it affected my fishing. <laughs> so. So um, I actually uh, came to a conclusion that uh, while we weren't the best stewards of the forest, I'm making a comment now in a general term across the whole industry. Um, our industry was uh, comprised of professional foresters. These are people that went to UBC or other schools uh, became a registered professional forester and they uh, did their very best to manage their part of the forest industry. According to those principles, um, uh, there was in part of their degree and their part of their training. And the, the other thing that people don't realize, I think, is when it comes to forestry, there is a chief forester for the province of BC. And that's a quasi-judicial sort of function in that the harvest of timber within the province of BC on the public lands is set by the chief forester, nobody else. Not the minister of forests, not the premier, 
not any of the companies, but the chief forester himself. And that is based on, if anybody's curious about it, is there is a land base that grows trees in our province. And each year that each tree adds an annual ring. And that is a volume of timber that gets added to the land base. And the allowable annual cut is equal to the volume of timber that's added by each tree over the course of a year. So if there's uh, 75 million cubic meters of allowable annual cut in British Columbia, which is approximately what it is, that means that there's 75 million cubic meters of timber that's added to the, uh, to the outside of each tree each year, and we cut down what we add. So the whole, um, the whole uh, philosophy of the BC uh, timber industry since the beginning uh, has been to harvest what is added. So we end up with the term perpetual harvest where we uh, add whatever is added is taken and over uh, the life of a forest, it, it never really changes the volume of timber that's out there. What changes is the age and where it's cut down and a thousand other variables. But there's never been a, a philosophy of clear cutting the land and there's nothing left. From the very beginning, it was always whatever's added, we'll take. And so it's a perpetual harvest. So that's worth understanding that that's in the legislature, it's in all the laws, and it's set by a professional forester who is independent from government. Okay. Um, do we want to stick on this theme? Well, yeah, I'm curious, you know, on a very, like, with your own eyes, kind of, do you notice, like, I, I'll give you an example, kind of, to... to to share with you what I see with my eyes. Like, you know, I grew up in, in Sherwood Park outside of Edmonton. And when I was growing up in my backyard, there was just basically, you know, we would call it like boondocks, right? It was just kind of like bush and acreages and, you know, it would go back. Eventually it became our drossin and et cetera. But behind my house, we, we would just take, you know, at one point, I remember a, a friend of my dad's had a quad and we'd just rip out on this ATV and it was just bush, right? We'd stumble upon little watersheds, little ponds, little lakes, little, you know, whatever, trees, bush, rabbits. I think my brother would go go for hunting and I don't know, all this kind of just, it was just land, right? And I go back to Sherwood Park very rarely, but I have, haven't for a long time. So it's probably even more built up, but none of that exists, right? Like none of it exists. So, you know, with my own eyes, I just see like a, a decimation of what used to be, you know, rich, vibrant land with animals and water and trees. It just doesn't exist anymore. Or another example, like, you know, where, where I walk very near to my house, past Pheasant Glen, down to the French Creek, river, which is beautiful. It's a beautiful walk. And that, you know, there are some trees in there that are huge that have been laughed and other places you can see, you know, within that land that, it, you know, places which have really been decimated. And 
even in we've been here 10 years and even in that time that I've been walking those paths, you can see the the land is just shrinking, right? There's more and more houses, there's more and more lots, there's less and less trees. And when we go down to the river, I mean, it's gorgeous, right? There, the, there's the beautiful sound of the river and there's eagles flying in the sky, but you can also sense that that French Creek area, it's, it's, it's dying. It's a little bit of a dying landscape, right? So when I, when I say to you as a fly fisherman lover of rivers and streams and, and nature, do you see that kind of, you know, cause you've been here on this planet longer than I have and immersed in nature, probably even in, in deeper ways than I have at certain times of your life. And do you see that with your own eyes, that kind of like, oh, oh my God, it's going, like it's changing. It's Or do you see, you know, because you maybe have a wider view than me. Do you think like, no, it's doing well. I see it thriving. Well, let's go back to GFL number one, first tree farm in the province, uh, based in Terrace. And I've been, that was in 1982 that I moved there. So what are we, 40 years on? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I spent a month up there last year fishing. And I, of course, can see the difference between the tree farm I managed in 1982 and what's going on today. And the um, increase in cutting, the, the new areas that have been harvested since my time. Um, so yeah, I've noticed a dramatic change but I've also uh, seen areas that in the early 80s, we, we commercially thinned and um, fertilized and uh, did a lot of silviculture on. And those trees are being harvested now in 40 years, which is sort of unheard of because the Forest Service normally runs the forest on about a 120 year cycle. So um, I've seen the new, you know, uh, clear cutting of areas and I've seen regeneration of areas in my time, in mm -hmm. my time. Um, the other thing that we see um, is we have to understand that there's commercial forest land and there's private land and where you're walking in French Creek is private timber and uh, whoever owns those trees is their trees and they um, can get a permit to cut them down. The province will not allow anybody to cut a tree down on BC without a permit but what they do with their land and their timber and whether they wish to cut every single tree and make it into a desert, it's their land and they have the right to do that. On the public land managed as a commercial forest, there are um, tomes of regulations involving what you can do on the public land and how far close you can cut to a stream and how much you have to leave for this and how much you leave for that and the fact that you have to leave areas to join up so that wildlife can go in the forest safely and never have to walk across a clear cut. Uh, and and um, how a road has to be built and how this and this and this and this and this. So 
the regulations on the public-based timber have continued to be more challenging. They've continued to raise the bar as far as the standards and the effect of harvesting a tree on what's left in the environment. Uh, all of that's good. And all of it um, makes it more challenging to uh, run the business on, on the BC coast. And the BC coast industry has been declining fairly dramatically over the past uh, 20, 30 years, probably has lost a third of its capacity because it's too expensive to run the sawmills now um, and too expensive to harvest the timber now. So the uh, days back in um, after the war and through that period when the BC coast was this monstrous forest industry is long, long, long gone. And it's probably only a quarter of what it used to be back in the day. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the, um, if you look at a cutting permit from 15 years ago, beside a river on the public timber, you'll see how close they came to that, that river um, when they were logging. And if you look at a cutting permit from today, you'll see that the boundary on that river is three or four times what it was. Mm -hmm. And that's all good stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all going on. But let's talk about the, the forest itself. So um, you, you start logging a forest and it's all original growth. Now we have to understand what old growth is. Are we okay going into this now? Yeah, yeah. And I and just to clarify what you're about to discuss, I think this is very important, I think, to to define like what's old growth and then what's ancient forest, right? What's intact ancient forest, what's old growth, what's second or third growth. So yeah, carry on. All right. So uh, as we mentioned earlier, the forest industry on the BC coast is really Vancouver Island. That's uh, where where uh, most of the trees came from. Yes, there is harvesting up and down the coast, um, but, and I'll just dwell on that for a second. And then as you get farther up the coast, heading toward Prince Rupert, uh, they call it the Great Bear Rainforest. What it is, is a, is a very, very old forest that's dying. And uh, it's over mature. And that extends right up to TFL number one back to my original tree farm. TFL number one was awarded to the uh, Salinese Corporation in New York in order to build a, a pulp mill in Prince Rupert. Now, why did they uh, choose that particular area? Well, TFL one is classed as uh, a class eight and class nine forest, which means, um, over 90% of the forest is 300 years or older. Now that would be considered old growth or ancient growth by today's standards, but uh, trees can live long, more than 300 years. So what's been going on of course is 
The forest gets old, it gets over mature, falls down, new trees grow up. And that cycle has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But the tree farm of number one that was awarded to Selenies to build the Prince Rupert pulp mill was done because the forest has no commercial value as far as lumber goes, but it has the ability to generate pulp chips from the rotten over mature wood. So the forest up in Terrace uh, in that area is all dying, it's falling over. And the purpose of, uh, of trying to do something there was to get some economic value out of that forest before it's gone. Now, um, we're coming back to Vancouver Island, which is where the big volume is. If you take a line, if you look at Strathcona Park on a map of the island, you'll see a straight line on the Vancouver side. And if you run that straight line down the island, it'll come out west of Souk. And you'll see it goes west of Port Alberni as it comes down. That uh, area and, and, and from in the northern part near Campbell River, it cuts off to the coast. So that um, land base was given to the Dunsmere family to build the Esquimalt and Nanaimo Railway back in the day. And that was the land grant that they got to do that. And so all that land uh, remains fee simple land. And the Dunsmere family uh, built their railway and then they sold it to the CPR. So the Canadian Pacific Railway owned all that land on Vancouver Island. And then they sold bits and pieces off here, there and everywhere. And now there's various different companies that have uh, forest lands and uh, other types of property in that land base. And that's where the subdivisions get built on that land base and so on. If you go to the other side, the Japan side of that line, that's all public forest. Um, or oh, I should say that the, the, the E&M land grant is a federal government managed forest. And the owners of the timber on that land do not pay stumpage. They don't pay any royalties at all for the for those trees, they're private trees. On the other side of the line, that's provincial government managed public forest and there's stumpage to be paid and enormous number of rules and regulations dealing with cutting those trees. Um, the west coast of Vancouver Island, which is where Ferry Creek is, um, uh, has been um, a very high cost, very difficult area to log in. What uh, it does have is what you might call ancient forest or old growth, meaning it hasn't been logged in our lifetime. Uh, where, where you, if you go up to um, um, Cameron Lake, on the way to Port Alberni, that's third growth forest in there. Mm -hmm. not, not, not cathedral growth, but the rest of the forest is third growth. Um, but on the west coast, there's still areas of old growth, original growth. Um, trees that were growing when Captain Cook was sailing around and that sort of thing. Now, a forest has a life. 
and it's born and it grows and it dies and new growth comes up and so on. If you've ever walked through an old growth forest, most people um, should notice that, that there's not much growing on the ground because there's no light. And if you look up, you'll see a canopy, a crown, and all those trees have are taking all of their energy and from the sun up at the top. And there's really no light coming down through to the bottom. So there's mosses and other species that are uh, low light requirement species. And of course, the trees themselves, as they've grown up, uh, the branches at the bottoms of the trees where they couldn't get light die and they fall off. And the tree keeps adding annual rings every year. And eventually all those branches, they get covered up. So this happens up every year and it keeps going. So as these trees are really quite old, you look up and you don't see a lot of branches on the way up. And all the branches are at the top where they can gather sunlight and there's nothing below. And then at the bottom where you are, walking about, you'll see mosses and little scrub plants and so on and so forth. But there's not a lot of food there. There's not a lot of life there. It's all up at the top where there is energy to be had. So um, we have a great affinity as, as humans for these old forests. When you go into an old forest, the air is different. The feeling, the ambience is different. You almost feel like you're home. It, it is a wonderful sort of mothered feeling to be standing in an ancient forest like that. Can't explain it either way. Anybody that's done it and you've just done it, it's a different feeling and you feel like this is a special place and we shouldn't mess this up. Um, the other thing that's going on on the other side of it is those trees are getting older and older and older. And at some point, they're gonna to start to fall over and they're gonna go back into the soil and the nutrients that are in the trees. Those trees are made of um, elements that came out of the soil, water and energy from the sun, which photosynthesis, and it created the cellulose that the trees constructed of. When it falls over, the bacteria get in there and they break it all down. And then it goes into the roots of another young plant and it starts all over again. So the forester's idea is you catch the forest at the right time when it's still vibrant, still living, but it's gonna to start to die. Now up in Terrace where the forest is ancient there, those trees are falling over and you cut one down with a chainsaw, it falls on the ground and it breaks up into pieces. And, and there's nothing in the middle because it's been rotting from the middle out. Uh, and a lot of the west coast of Vancouver Island is similar. So in a perfect world, the forester says, this forest is now gonna to start to fall down next year and it will lose its commercial value to the, the people that own this forest 
So if we're going to harvest it, we should take it now and, br and bring in a new crop in this area. And given the principle that we're only taking what's added each year, then there'll be another area to log later and another area and another area. And eventually we'll go back to the first area that was logged way back when, and it'll be one of those lovely old growth forests and we'll do it again as farms. Um, but there's this um, conflict we have with the, the desire of a great number of people to preserve these old places, these, these original forests that go back into ancient, ancient times. And that's coupled with a forester, the chief forester who has established a harvest routine for this land base. And the prescription would be to take a certain volume of that timber each year and replant it. Okay. Now, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about forms of trees so that people understand there's the difference. There's tree farm licenses, which we've talked about, known as TFLs. There's forest licenses. There's wood lots. There's timber sales. These are all different forms of what we call tenure, which is the government giving the right to someone to cut down a tree in BC. The tree farm license is the most demanding form of tenure because it's called area-based timber. The forest license is called volume-based timber. Let me explain the difference. So a tree farm license has a fence around it. There's an area of land, it's got a boundary, and, the, and within the, the, that boundary, the chief forester establishes a volume that can be taken from that land base every year forever. Uh, so that is like having your own private little bit of timber but you, if you cut it down, you have to replant it, you have to manage it, you have to do a whole bunch of things to retain the right to keep cutting trees down within that land base. A forest license is a volume-based timber, so somebody gets the right to cut 100,000 cubic meters of timber a year for their sawmill or their plywood mill, but it, there is no land base that that's specified on. A forest service will have to tell you where to go this year and next year and the year after. And it can be anywhere. And it can be on somebody's tree farm if that's decided. And then there's timber sales, which are put up all the time that you or I or anybody else can go bid on. And it gives us, if we're a successful bidder, then that gives us the right to, to harvest that timber. And most of those will be on tree farms where the government takes a portion of the tree farm back from the original holder and puts it up for an auction for small business. And then they get to use the roads on the tree farm and everything else and they harvest the timber. So there's many, many forms of, of this tenure. Um, but in the case of Ferry Creek, it's a tree farm, TFL 44, I believe. 
And the area in question is at the head of an unlogged valley, the Ferry Creek Valley. And this is a, a portion of the timber that's at the very top of the valley that's being accessed from roads that were built in the adjacent valley. So um, if you and 25 other people wanna save that valley, well, first of all, that valley's never gonna be locked, the whole valley, but there's portions of it that will be because it's, it's in the land base. Um, if, if you were uh, the Jones brothers and they have the right to cut that timber down, Neil Jones, uh, that timber at that cutting permit, that area that's, that's being set up for logging has a commercial value. There's, a, there's timber there, it has a value. There's a cost to harvesting that timber and there's a cost to building the roads to get at that timber. If Teal Jones feels the commercial value of that setting, that, that cutting permit is uh, $2 million, say, let's just pick a number. Uh, if you walk up and offer them $2.1 million not to log it, they'll probably say, fine, you, you, we, we won't log it because there's nothing in it for them to log it. It'll cost, they'll lose money logging it because they're gonna to have to give up the, the money that you owe them. But if you just don't want them to cut the trees down, first thing they've done is they've, they've built a road in there, a very expensive road. It's, it's almost $100,000 a kilometer to build road in the, in the mountainous areas of the island. It's very expensive. The other thing is they've got, um, one, two, four or five sawmills with thousands of employees. And those logs are in the flow to go be harvested in that area, plus a bunch of other areas and funnel themselves eventually to the mill and be pr uh, produced uh, into various different lumber forms. And, and Jones does everything with their wood. They're very innovative, very creative, and they're family. I know them, they're very successful uh, business people and they have uh, shingle mills in, in the cusp and they have uh, cedar remanufacturing in, in uh, near Kamloops and they have coast mills and they have mills in the United States. Um, if those uh, trees are, um, are bought from them, then they would, would shut up, they would, that hole in their log supply would result in some people getting laid off. And, and that's what the compensation is for the timber and for the layoff costs and so on. That's what you have to do to make them indifferent to logging. But if you're just complaining and saying, no, you can't do that. Uh, we don't want you to log those things then they've got mills, they've got employees, they've got money invested, and they have a cutting permit that by law gives them the right to cut those trees down. So if you want them not to cut the trees down, you can make it worth their while not to. Anything else that you're trying to do, you're gonna to have to convince the government of BC to change the laws regarding 
form of tenure known as tree farm licenses. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question at that is, do you, where you stand and from everything you've ever, you've seen in your career, do you think that we're at a point or do you think we'll get to a point where, where the way that we've looked at forest manage, management needs a radical change. And we could probably dispute some of these stats, but the people fighting for Fairy Creek would say that there's 3% left of these ancient forests in all of BC. I think it, depending on if you're talking old growth, I think we could sneak that number up to about 10%, that that's what's left of these old growth forests. 3%, I think an ancient intact untouched forest where people haven't been logging, you know, since, since we've been here. Um, so at that kind of low percentage of these, these really, like you said, these places that feel sacred that, you know, I can tell you when I went to Fairy Creek, it was so radically different than anywhere I've ever been in that it was like thriving alive. Like maybe it's a dying forest, the trees are dying, but because humans haven't been in there meddling, there was something else going on. Like you say, with the, with the air, with the water, you know, there was water seeping out of every little crack and crevice and rock. And, you know, there, there's, there was water everywhere, everywhere that I turned. It was another little trickle of water. So does there come a time on our planet when we go like, oh, shit. Like this has been working great, these rules or these, the way that we've been managing resources, this has been working for us for a hundred years, 200 years, I don't know how many years, but, but can't, is there a point where we step back and we go, okay, well, we're kind of down to the, the last of it, like the last of the big guys, the last of these kind of untouched watersheds, the last of these untouched places. Do we come to a place where we, where we say to our government or those people making the laws and the policies and the tenors and all of that, giving the, the permits, we can't do this anymore. Like just stop for a minute while we figure this out. Like, you know, I don't know whose whose job this is to to pay Teal Jones while we while we have these conversations, but it looks like or feels like at least in Fairy Creek, like there's not a lot of time, right? Like it's like tomorrow they're gonna cut it if these people these these protesters get off the land, like the, they're moving in and they're gonna take it down. So there's not a I think those people standing there on that land in protest are 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 making that statement, right? Like, okay, guys, all of you involved in this industry, government, uh, forestry, and, and everybody else, people in construction, everybody else who needs the timber, the, the people working in the mills, the loggers, all these people who are reliant on the financial benefit of extracting these resources. For a moment, we all have to stop, even if that means you have to eat craft dinner and uh, rice and beans for a year, we all have to stop for long enough to rethink like wh what are these resources worth and how can we rewrite forestry so that we don't end up with zero ancient growth forests, with zero uh, old growth, you know? Okay, so let's let's develop my my little thread about creating a world where Teal Jones is indifferent to logging, okay? Or a world where Teal Jones is motivated not to log, right? Not to log. 
to uh, stop doing what they're doing, um, curtail their mills, and so on. Now let's bounce over to the fishing business for a while. And Atlantic salmon, which have run into the rivers of, of the Scandinavian areas, the UK, Ireland, and all of Quebec and the Eastern seaboard of the US, endangered. And so, and the biggest uh, harvesters were the, were the Icelandic fishing fleet. So uh, I believe it was a Norwegian or perhaps an Icelandic person said, we were gonna raise money from the fishermen of the world and we're gonna pay the commercial fishermen not to fish. And when they don't fish, we'll increase the abundance of salmon. And that's exactly what they did. So there is a case of a group of people saying, this is a scarce resource. We cannot take this to extinction. We have to change what we're doing. Now let's get back to your point on the trees. Yes, there's no question that the perception of the world and, and I'm talking the forest industry now, the perception is changed. And, you know, back in the day, you used to say pictures of a bunch of loggers standing around with a tree that was, you know, 20 feet across the butt and everybody's puffing cigars and saying, look what we did, right? Can you do that today? Nobody would stand in that picture today. Even the loggers that got it down because they don't, you know, that's not, that's not a trophy anymore. Yeah. So, um, I don't, so can't remember where we were. Well, um, Oh, changing. All right. Yeah. So, um, I, I believe now that um, given that the industry has been shrinking anyways, because it's become uneconomic, you're also uh, at a period in, in history where there is a value being placed on standing in the Ferry Creek Valley and just breathing the air. And that's worth value now. And it wasn't 30 or 40 years ago. Today, people value that. All right. So I think the way these things get sorted out is the company has been given the right to do something. If we want them to stop logging, then we have to retract those rights. Mm -hmm. And because a company is gonna lose its timber, it's gonna lose the right to run its mills, so on and so forth. It's gonna be like the Atlantic salmon fishermen. You're gonna to have to compensate these people uh, to shrink their business in half or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is nothing new. Uh, there's been timber taken away from companies almost continuously for 40, 50 years and they have been compensated for it. Mm -hmm. So the government has been doing this for a long time. There's nothing new. Um, but 
when the cutting permit has been issued and the road has been built, it's too late. It, it really is too late unless you've got a Loomis van full of gold bricks and you can <laughs> run, it, run it right up to somebody and say, stop, stop, stop. We've got all this wealth. Uh, don't lock these trees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what needs to be done is you need the um, um, Sierra Club and the Suzuki's and, and all of these people sitting down with your government to say, we've got to reestablish the values of this timber base in BC. And these are the areas that we think have an intrinsic value has got nothing to do with the value of that log. It, mm -hmm. It's got to do with uh, the fact that it's, it's been pristine now for at least 500 years and, and we want to keep it that way. So, um, but we understand this, there's a cost to this. We understand you can't just yell and scream and jump up and down. You have to have a mechanism to, if you're gonna remove something, then you have to compensate for it because that's the way our society works. It has laws, it, it creates wealth with licenses and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So sit down with your government and um, say that we, we you know, we, we've got to uh, revalue these areas here and here's 15 of them that we, we would like to see kept as it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think, you know, partly as I, as I hear you speak that truth, right? It's just, it's a fact. It's, it is the way it is, right? I also think what's starting to, to rumble inside of people is, you know, like the people, especially who have, who have taken for eight months, they've been living in the freezing cold winter in a rainforest, right? Like they're like, committed beyond committed. They're giving up their livelihoods. They're giving up their families. They're just like, F it. I don't know who's going to figure this out, but while you figure it out, we're going to be here so that you can cut these trees. And I think what's starting to rumble inside of people is this, is this, this kind of revolution almost where I think it's been, you know, it's been rising for centuries, maybe but but finally kind of coming to this peak or this point where where the people who haven't had money or the people who haven't been making the decisions or the people who haven't been driving policy are finally saying like we don't really have anything else to lose here guys <laughs> like we don't we may not even our kids may not even have air or water or food so at this point we don't really care who who's in charge or who's going to make the law or who's going to change the law or who's going to raise the money. We're just kind of willing to give up our life at this point to, to make change. And I think the, the hard part for people to swallow me, you, everybody else in Canada, the, the, the guys who own the companies, the people sitting in government, the, the, the other people doing whatever they do around the, the parameter of all of that, all of us, I think what's really difficult to swallow is that if we pay attention to these people who are saying like, I don't know, something's got to change. I don't know how it's going to change or when it, or, or the steps that we'll take to change it precisely, but it's got to change. I think what we'll all be sitting in and what we all resist is that every single one of us who lives, especially in Canada, are 
our access to wealth, our access to comfort, our access to healthcare, our access to nice roads, our access to free education are all the things that we've been enjoying because of the wealth that we've created through all these resources. It won't exist. It, it That's kind of what you're saying, right? Like something, some resource equals some value. And if we stop taking the resources, there's, there's no money, right? So, and we we live in a society and a, uh, an agreement, we've made these agreements that we we all want the money. We all want what the money gives us, all of us, right? Like, look at, you know, I'm sitting in this gorgeous studio with all this technology and like, we've all reaped the rewards of, of that wealth. But I think we are hitting the ceiling where we realize like we've actually extracted, we've actually become accustomed to extracting resources at a rate that's unsustainable. We were always more people, we're always less resources. And there comes a point where we just can't, as much as we wish we could, as much as we, you know, cross our fingers and hope that money can sort it out or policy can sort it out. What we're really starting to touch on, which again, we're probably close to an hour, if not already, is this, this kind of question, I think, who anybody who invests in this conversation comes to this question where we go like, are, are we willing personally to downgrade our material wealth in order to salvage some of our natural world? And that's a hard question. I mean, I don't know how many people or who is ready to do that, but I think that's what it kind of comes down to. You know, we can't continue to extract and use resources on earth at this speed, even though it's very comfortable and cushy, if we want to retain some of its beauty and, and, and natural world, right? Yeah, well, that's, that's right, Jill. Did, but the thing that um, I'd like to leave you with yeah. is the path, the path to get this done. And I want to go back to the Atlantic salmon mm-hmm. where this particular individual found a path and raised an enormous amount of money from American fishermen, Scandinavian fishermen, and Canadian fishermen, and bought off an industry to stay home. Mm -hmm. So there is the philosophical issue that we're talking about, but there's a doable path issue. And what's missing is the doable path here. Standing in the forest, in the, in the uh, blocking a uh, company from cutting down the trees that the government's given them the legal right to do now becomes an issue of law and order, not saving the trees. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately law and order will prevail and they'll be removed because the company does have the right legally given to them by the government to do this. What the path is, is not standing at Ferry Creek with a sign. The path is in Victoria. And and the Victoria people, the path is is at Victoria to change the rules. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't have the right to cut those trees down, They'll just grow and they'll fall over and they'll be regenerated. And this will go on for children's children's children's. But there's, but the path that the people, 
that are motivated and concerned is not the path that will work. And so all, all I can see is their heart is pure. They're trying to do something they really believe in, but they haven't got the right path. They're not managing the situation in a way that will get the job done. Mm -hmm. I support them. I don't want to see any more of these pristine valleys logged. I want to see the rivers stay. I want to see the fish stay. We got lots of issues going on. But I know in my life, you have to find a doable path to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And these people don't have a doable path. They, they cannot win this, this issue because it, it leaves being trees, Joe, and becomes law and order. Now, when you're talking about law and order, you've got an entirely different view in the population about what to do here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should we let these people break the law? Well, we're not talking about should we cut the trees down now? We're talking about breaking the law. Mm -hmm. That will never work in Canada because we still are run by laws as a society. So what do you do? Change the law. You have to change the law. Yeah. And put all of your time, all of your efforts, all of your money in, instead of dealing with the symptom, deal with the problem. Yeah, the root. Landing at Ferry Creek is dealing with the symptom. And you cannot solve a problem dealing with the symptoms. You have to go to the problem, which is stop issuing the legal right to cut the trees down. Yeah. When you get that done, and it might take a whole bunch of money to do that. Well, that's fine. That's the path. And if enough people want these trees there, it'll be done in a heartbeat. <laughs> Everybody will kick in a hundred bucks and that's that. But that's not what's happening now. So my message would be to those that care, find the path that will give you the work. And I would recommend that that path is in Victoria. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if it was on the E&N lands, the private lands on the other side of the line, that path is in uh, Ottawa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lobbying our... But it's not wringing our hands, talking about philosophical issues and, and the piece of old growth forest. That's not what we're talking about here. Find the doable path. It'll all get changed with ridiculous ease. Well, Jim, I really thank you for your time and your, your shedding some light on, you know, the finer details about the policies behind the and within that industry and your practical perspective, because I think, you know, my dream would be to have like a roundtable discussion where there was, you know, the the minister of forestry and the chief forester and the, you know, somebody representing um, one perspective from the first nations and somebody perspective or uh, representing a different perspective from the first nations, because we know that even within those groups, they are not all thinking and feeling the same way, you know, somebody, somebody representing a few different angles and everybody, you know, kind of having a conversation together. I know that's probably just a, a pipe dream, but I'm grateful for, at least you bringing a different perspective to, to the conversation for me and hopefully for the listeners. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being here.